It is another blessed occasion, isn't it, to come together and to assemble. I hope none of us ever take for granted how sweet a privilege it is to be able to assemble in freedom, to assemble without fear of threat or molestation, harm if you please, and to do so with a love in our heart for the great God that made this possible. So many Christians throughout the ages haven't been able to enjoy what you and I do, at least in that freedom. I might use that as an opportunity to invite each of us to be back Wednesday evening. At the 7 o'clock hour, we'll cast a spotlight one more time on the Revelation, the last book in the Bible, and find one more time occasions that center around the topic of challenges and difficulties, persecutions, and the needed message that you and I should appreciate to help us overcome those matters. So if you can be with us that night, I hope that the Word of God would be a blessing and an encouragement to each of us who are privileged to gather then. Messages from Micaiah. That's the title of the lesson tonight, and I would invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament. This opening slide will be one where we will set somewhat of a stage, a foundation, from which we'll springboard into the lesson in just a moment. As you and I know, there were many prophets of the Old Testament who were such that they actually wrote some things, and the Holy Spirit saw fit to preserve them. Writings, say, of Isaiah and Jeremiah and others, and you and I have so often been blessed and benefited by reflecting on those great messages from so long ago. But it's also true that there were other prophets. They were such that if they did write anything, the Holy Spirit has not seen fit to preserve it. I might call to your attention servants of God like Nathan and Gad. They are frequently mentioned, but we have none of their writings. Isn't it interesting that you and I come to the bottom of the slide? There are other prophets of the Old Testament about which you and I know exceedingly little. In fact, if I were to mention gentlemen like Oded, 2 Chronicles 15.8, or perhaps Ido in 2 Chronicles 13.22, maybe you and I couldn't even have said that they were prophets. And yet they too are listed in the Old Testament and occupied a position encouraging the people of that day. Tonight we're going to study another prophet. Maybe we know little about him, but we do know a little bit more than we do about Ido especially. The gentleman's name is Micaiah, and for the next few moments tonight, let's cast a spotlight on the record of the Old Testament because I believe we'll discover that he actually can teach you and I some rather amazing truths even today. There are two chapters in the Old Testament that tell us about this gentleman. One of them is 1 Kings chapter 22. The other, 2 Chronicles chapter 18. Tonight, as you and I will look at each of those chapters, we probably will spend a bit more time in 1 Kings 22. But I would invite you, perhaps, if you have the opportunity this week, to just read those chapters. Let me begin by setting the following statements, if I might. The history of the Old Testament, of course, primarily focuses on the people of Israel. And we learn that these individuals, in fact, there came a time after they had left Egyptian captivity that they ultimately arrived at the Promised Land. And after living there for quite some time, they chose the fact they wanted a king. Saul was their first king, and following him was a man named David, and following him was a man named Solomon. For a period of 120 years, the kingdom was united. But all of that changed after the reign of Solomon. 
After Solomon's reign, his son was named Rehoboam, and Rehoboam acted a bit foolishly. So much so that ten of the tribes chose not to follow him, and they banded together and made a kingdom of their own. It's called the northern kingdom of Israel. The remaining two tribes did choose to remain faithful and loyal to Rehoboam, and they comprised the southern kingdom of Judah. It's at that point you'll notice the kings of each one of these kingdoms. The northern kingdom had wicked kings. The first one was Jeroboam, and one by one as you proceed from one of the kings to the next one, it never really improved much. The seventh of the northern kingdom's kings was a man named Ahab, and we know him well among other reasons for his wife, whose name was Jezebel, a wicked man, one who did not encourage godliness. In fact, he himself lived in a very ungodly, idolatrous way. As you come to the southern kingdom, things at least were slightly better in that they did have a good king every now and then. The fourth of the southern kingdom's kings was a man named Jehoshaphat, and he was a good king. And so at this point in history, we have the southern kingdom with a good king, the northern kingdom with another wicked one. That brings us to note the following. The northern kingdom is such that among the territories and among the cities that had been a part of that kingdom was a city known as Ramoth-Gilead. You and I have encountered Ramoth-Gilead in the Old Testament because it was one of the six cities of refuge. It was a place wherein God gave the opportunity for individuals who were guilty of accidental murder to flee to a place of, of refuge. You'll notice that Ramoth-Gilead had been a city of God, a city of the God's people. But the enemy nations had captured it. The Syrians had captured it. And as you'll notice on that slide, that capture had been maintained for a long time. Israel hadn't been blessed to have that city for quite some time. And finally, Ahab, the king of the northern kingdom, said, we'd like to have Ramoth-Gilead back. And so it was that he sent a message to Jehoshaphat, come down and help me. And in fact, when Jehoshaphat came to visit, he made him an offer. I would like to recapture and recover Ramoth-Gilead. Will you help me? Will you send your chariots and your troops to be with my chariots and my troops? Jehoshaphat said, absolutely. Our people will be like your people and our chariots like yours. And so it seems as if a good plan of attack was put in place. As you and I come to the next slide, you begin to notice the following with me. Jehoshaphat, again, this good king, had a desire. He said, why don't we inquire of God to make sure that this is in accordance to His will? So he asked Ahab, is there any prophet of the Lord here? Ahab was very dutiful and said, why, absolutely. And so he gathered 400 prophets, and they, with one ascent before the two kings, said, You go and you capture Ramoth-Gilead. God will be with you, and victory is certain. Amazing. Jehoshaphat wasn't convinced. He could immediately sense something about those 400 prophets. And so Jehoshaphat, one more time, said to King Ahab, Is there a prophet of the Lord here? And I think it's amazing what Ahab replied. I'd like to read it. 
I'm reading from Second King, or rather, First Kings 22. Verse number 8 gives us the reply, and this is what Ahab said. There is yet one man, Micaiah, the son of Imla, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, for he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. After those 400 prophets had paraded, if you please, before the two kings, we notice that Jehoshaphat said, But is there not a prophet of the Lord here? And Ahab was quick to say, Well, there is one man, but I hate him. He never prophesies anything good concerning me. To continue with the saga from that point, you notice that the scene developed rather quickly because Ahab said to his servants, You go and bring Micaiah. And isn't it amazing that the messenger who in fact was sent to bring Micaiah was such that while he was bringing Micaiah, he said to him, Look, all the other 400 prophets have given a good message. They have given them word of a good statement to the king, and you need to do the same thing. Verse number 14 gives us Micaiah's reply to that. As the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. Aren't you already a bit convicted about Micaiah? And sure enough, when he came and appeared before the two kings who were sitting in their royal apparel, and these other 400 prophets were parading before them, Micaiah was a lone man standing against the other 400. Micaiah, in fact, told a story. He gave a record. And when he did so, the message was clear. The statement that he gave was this one. He gave an affirmation that those 400 prophets were false prophets and that it was so because of the virtue of what was desired by the king. You may notice as it ends up, finally the king says, Take this man out of here and go feed him in prison with bread of water, or rather with water of affliction and with bread of affliction. Because of his stance... Micaiah was to be imprisoned. In addition to that, you might note this. He had one final word for Ahab because Ahab prefaced that by saying, You hold him in ward until I return in peace. Micaiah's final word to Ahab was this. If, I ret- if, I, if you return at all in peace, God never sent me. Let's now finish the record. The battle ensued shortly thereafter. Jehoshaphat's men and Ahab's men prepared for battle against these Syrians. And as the battle ensued, isn't it fascinating to remember that Ahab disguised himself? Now had he worn his royal apparel, perhaps the enemy would have easily seen who he was, but he disguised himself. It didn't work. The Bible tells us the following. I would again ask you to note the text with me. Verse 34 describes the death of Ahab. And a certain man drew a bow at a venture and smote the king of Israel between the joints of the harness. Wherefore he said unto the driver of his chariot, Turn thine hand and carry me out of the host, for I am wounded. And the battle increased that day, and the king was stayed up in his chariot against the Syrians and died at even. And the blood ran out of the wound into the midst of the chariot. Do you get a sense of what was just portrayed before our imagination? The king of Israel had escaped all the enemy 
except one. Notice it says he was wearing a harness. That was something like an armor. Now, it was made in such a way that there were very, very tiny openings between it so you could bend over. And here we notice an interesting statement is made in verse 34. And a certain man drew a bow at a venture. In other words, the arrow that ultimately struck Ahab was accidental in one sense. The man wasn't aiming for him. It would appear that this particular Syrian was just shooting an arrow almost at random. Maybe he was not in the major thrust of the battle. And yet, as that arrow sailed through the air, it penetrated between the very small opening in the greaves, if you please, that Ahab was wearing. And he died later that day. You can't run from God. You can't hide from God. You may remember that the prophet Micaiah had said, you won't return in peace. Now you and I notice how all of it ended up, and Israel was defeated in that battle. But in amidst all of it, it's Micaiah that I would wish us to consider for the next few moments. As you and I come to the bottom of that slide, and also to the next one, you notice the amazing feature of what Micaiah foretold. And he did so with courage, and he did so with bravery, and he did so as a stall, stout-hearted servant of God. With that in mind, let's reflect on four lessons from the person of Micaiah. What might we learn that could be of some benefit and helpfulness to you and me? You may notice, as you try to appreciate some of the features he foretold, he didn't just say what the king wanted to hear. And he didn't say what the other 400 prophets had been so quick to say either. Maybe it's at this point these lessons are now immediate. Lesson number one, Micaiah's reputation. The reputation of Micaiah. Let's develop that in the following way. Did you notice? Here was the king, the king of, of, of the southern kingdom. Jehoshaphat, is there a prophet of the Lord here? Now first, King Ahab brought together 400 of his prophets. Notice, he knew what they were going to say because they were yes men to him. After they had made their parade and after they had made their declaration, one more time Jehoshaphat said, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here? And when an answer was needed... Ahab said, well, I know of one man. Ahab had, a, rather, Micaiah had a pretty grand reputation, didn't he? He was known as a prophet of God. He was not a yes man for Ahab. He was not one who merely was going to tout what the king wanted to hear. A bit later in the record, something interesting also developed. When Micaiah was first brought before Ahab and, Jeho and Jehoshaphat, the first word from Ahab was, Shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead or shall we forbear? And uh, the first word of Micaiah was, Go ahead and enjoy victory. There was something in the tone of his voice that immediately relayed to Ahab that he, he was being sarcastic. Ahab in essence said, No, no, no. I really want to know what God said. One more time, isn't that a reminder of the influence and of the reputation of Micaiah. 
He was known as a man of God. He was known as one who was a prophet of God. Look at some of the statements on that slide. Because doesn't it ask a grand question of you and me? How are you known and what about me? When others hear your name, perhaps on Thursday of this week, maybe Saturday, perhaps in some context far removed from the Pippin Church of Christ building, do they think of a person devoted and dedicated to what's true? Does your reputation precede you in a good way? It sure did for Micaiah. He was known as an individual who, in uncompromising fashion, was a person known for truth. Look at some of these verses with me. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, as Paul addressed those comments to the church at Corinth, he said to them, Be ye steadfast and unmovable. Are you movable? What about me? Are you and I known as anchors upon which you cannot appreciate anything moving? We are told, are we not, in Hebrews 6, verses 18 and following, how that we have an anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast, and that just as surely as God, by virtue of His immutability, made declaration of that, you and I can imagine the same. Another verse is 1 Peter 3, 15. In fact, in light of our upcoming personal evangelism seminar, how noteworthy is that passage. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that's within you with meekness and with fear. You and I have a hope within us. Are we committed to it? You notice that Micaiah surely was. This gentleman that we've just studied what an impression he had left even on a wicked man named Ahab. But you'll notice one other thing about him is lesson number two. A degree of conviction that was so terribly impressive. You noticed it as we read it a moment ago in verse 14. Here was a man, namely Micaiah. He was brought, sure enough, but notice his conviction. There were four other men, 400, 400 other prophets. They were yes men. They said what the king wanted to hear because it would appear maybe he paid them. In other words, they had their salary from the coffers, if you please, of the kingdom. And so they were going to say what the king wanted to hear. And that messenger that came to bring Micaiah, you make sure to say what he wants to hear now. Because he's got an audience, another foreign dignitary is here and he doesn't want to look bad. You need to make sure to say what he wants to hear. Micaiah said this, As the Lord liveth, what the Lord speaketh unto me, that will I say. Aren't you convicted about that? Here was a man who was about to stand before the king, but he wouldn't bow to the pressure of the king. Can't you think of other men in the Old Testament like that? Nathan had the nerve to stand before David and say, You are the man. You're the one that committed adultery. You're the one that committed murder. You're the man. He stood before the man who could have had him killed for that. Gad did something like it too, didn't he? Later in the book of Amos, Amos was bold like that, wasn't he? 
Here were men, individuals, and how convicted they were. Look at some of these verses as you and I consider ourselves. What convicts you and me? Is it social convenience? Is it matters touching the affairs of life? Are they what convict us? Do I worry a lot more about that sort of thing than I do about being right with God? That's something to think about, isn't it? What disturbs and troubles you and me at night? Do you wake up at night tossing and turning because of what appears ultimately to be the flimsy matters of this life? Or do you wake up wondering if you're right with God? If we're right with God, we ought to be at peace. We ought to understand a characteristic tranquility and serenity that comes with being a child of God. What convicts us? Look at these verses. In Revelation 2 verse 10, To a congregation, namely that at Smyrna, that was about to face a period of trial and difficulty and extreme persecution, the Lord Jesus Himself told them, Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give thee a crown of life. You'll notice in Proverbs 23, 23, we each are admonished to buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding, have you and I bought the truth? May we never, ever sell it. Never compromise it. Never allow it to be twisted and turned to suit our individual fancy. Maybe one final passage from Mark 12, verses 30 and 31. When Jesus was asked about the greatest of the commandments, He didn't hesitate. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. And the second commandment likened unto it is this, to love thy neighbor as thyself. Micaiah was a man of conviction. What about lesson number three? What else might be said about this gentleman, this prophet from the Old Testament era? Courage. We've noted it already, haven't we? But yet there were 400 prophets waiting for him when he got there. And as you read the record, the following becomes clear. Ahab and Jehoshaphat were presented in rather stately apparel. And the other 400 prophets were there before them listening carefully and giving them pieces of advice. Can you imagine how quiet it might well have been when through the door comes the messenger leading Micaiah. And these other prophets turn and look upon him and wonder what he's about to say. And the two kings listen carefully to what Micaiah also affirms. And it would appear that they all listened with care. But one thing is interesting. The name of one of those false prophets is given. His name was Zedekiah. Zedekiah, in fact, actually came up and had something direct to say. I'd like you to notice what he said. In verse number 24, Zedekiah did this to Micaiah. But Zedekiah, the son of Kenianah, went near and smote Micaiah on the cheek. Slapped him. Slapped Micaiah for what he had just said. For he, in fact, called all the others a false prophet. And as he did so, he then asked this question. Which way went the Spirit of the Lord from me to speak unto thee? That Spirit that led me to just slap you and smite you on the face. Tell me about where that came from. 
You see, these other prophets didn't like even a little bit what Micaiah just said. Telling them that they were false, telling the king what he didn't want to hear, namely, you are not going to be victorious at Ramoth Gilead. God isn't with you. And all these other prophets are false prophets. They didn't like it. But yet Micaiah was true to what he had said, as the Lord liveth and speaketh unto me, that will I say. What a man of courage. What a man of bravery. Based upon that conviction, aren't you impressed yet again with as all of that developed and took place, this man was the sole servant of God. Now, I would like to believe that Jehoshaphat was rather excited to hear that, but aren't you a bit shocked? After hearing all of it, nonetheless, Jehoshaphat led his troops go into battle. That's always puzzled me. If Jehoshaphat was a good king and he just heard this prophet of God say that this battle is such that God isn't with you, why did Jehoshaphat go ahead and support it? I don't know the answer to that. The Old Testament doesn't seem to say. In the next chapter, we are told that God wasn't happy with Jehoshaphat, so maybe Jehoshaphat made a very foolish choice. At the very least, we can say this, Micaiah was courageous. How courageous are you and I? That messenger that went to get him encouraged him, you say what the king wants to hear. You say what those other prophets are saying. You conform to what they are encouraging. I suppose Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 rings in our heart. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world." But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Are you and I too quick to conform? Too quick to compromise? Micaiah didn't. And that brings us to lesson four. The fourth and final lesson of our study time this evening. I thought it entirely reasonable to at least devote a moment to reflect on those 400 other prophets. More than once in the lesson, I have called them false prophets because they were. They were yes men to Ahab. They merely said what he wanted to hear. Micaiah wasn't like that. He was a prophet of God. God is not in the people-pleasing business. He never has been. In the minority, wasn't it true that only eight precious souls were saved aboard the ark, although the others had the opportunity to hear The message was not going to be changed to suit what they wanted to hear. Noah preached righteousness, 2 Peter 2 verse 5, but they weren't interested in that. But the message was never ever to be changed. In Jeremiah 5 verse number 1, God told Jeremiah to take a candle and you search in Jerusalem for one righteous man. One! But don't you ever change the message. And Jeremiah didn't. And he couldn't find a single righteous man. Not one. Maybe those are two points that bring us to appreciate there's something that we must ever keep before us as we contemplate the nature of those 400 false prophets on this occasion. And yea, the matter of such great appreciation even today. Let's start that discussion like this. 
God will allow individuals to pursue what they want. He won't cram truth into our head. He won't. He will, in fact, give His precious Son on the cross, and He did. And He will make the truth available to all, but He won't force it on anybody. He will let us make our choices and our pursuits, and He will allow us to proceed through life, and He will often try to garner our attention, admittedly, but He will not force Himself on any of us. He never has, and He never will. In Jeremiah 5, verse number 31, this rather sad refrain is made. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. There, the people wanted the false prophets because they told what the people wanted to hear. But Jeremiah didn't, and that's why he was thrown into the prison. He was thrown into the dungeon in chapter 32 of that book. That's why the people called him a traitor because they didn't like what he said. These 400 prophets said what Ahab wanted to hear, and I'm sure that he paid them well. But you'll notice that Jehoshaphat saw right through them. Is there not a prophet of God here? He could sell they weren't God's prophets. As you and I transition into the New Testament, in 1 John 4, verse number 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God, for many false prophets are gone out into the world. That was written to you and me today. Sadly, tragically, catastrophically, there are still false prophets. There are still individuals who are not true to the things of God. Now, they may be sincere, no question about that. They may be earnest, no question about that. But they're not righteous, they're not truthful because they don't say the things of God. They're much more likened unto the 400 than unto Micaiah. Let's look at one other verse. There's a dramatic description given in 2 Peter 2 verse number 1. Let me direct our attention to that as we consider the following. In the opening chapter of the book of 2 Peter, a dramatic statement had been made about what those ingredients of spiritual growth are. But then chapter 2 opens like this. But there were false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and shall bring upon themselves swift destruction. Peter, it seems, almost with a lump in his throat, said, Don't you know that just as surely as there were false prophets among the people of the ancient day, there's going to be false teachers among you. They'll bring in damnable heresies. Some of them will even deny the Lord that bought them but He commissioned them, you've got to be faithful and true and uncompromising and understand that God's message must never and can never be changed. For isn't it still true? Galatians 1 verses 8 and 9, Though an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we've preached unto you, let him be accursed. As I said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which you've received... Let him be accursed. Oh, how great the gospel is. 
it is with those things in mind, I would point you to a text in 2 Thessalonians 2. It is a text that's very strong. It's a text that's very sobering. So much so that I wanted to read it. It consists of two verses, verses 11 and 12 of 2 Thessalonians 2. It has a great bearing on this fourth lesson of our study tonight. Those verses read like this. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And the context is as follows. In the verses that preceded, there had been a description of the greatness and goodness of God as presented, at least in regard to this, namely the second coming of Christ and the judgment that shall follow it. And in the context of all of that, the man of sin, he said, shall be revealed. The point is, everybody has the opportunity to respond in and of themselves to the truth. God doesn't make anybody believe what's a lie and what's false, nor does He force the truth on anyone either. He allows each of us to make our choice. But did you notice what was said in verse 11? The American Standard reads it like this, For this cause God shall send them a working of error. That is to say, error will be in their midst, and He lets them decide whether they'll believe it or not. That's still true today. As error is rampant, He lets you and me be the final choice. Will I believe that error or will I, by knowledge and pursuit of that truth, understand that that is error and not follow it? For you'll notice it says God will allow them to believe a lie. You and I must be students of the Word. We must be like Micaiah and not like the 400 we must appreciate that in ourselves the truth has been made available to us and we must be courageous and convicted with regard to it just like Micaiah was. The final thought then of the slide is, what a sad end it is for those false ones. What happened to the 400? I'd like to think that they ultimately heard the word of Micaiah and they changed, but the Old Testament doesn't give any record of it. So too, you'll notice what was the end in 2 Thessalonians 2. It says in verse 12 that they all might be damned. While we have breath in our lungs, in this life we have that opportunity to come to the truth. But when the moment of death arrives, we've sealed our fate, we've written our ticket. Where do you and I stand tonight? Micaiah has had much to teach us. Let's close our lesson then with one final slide. Four things we've learned from Micaiah. What a grand reputation as a person of God he was. Secondly, we gave highlight to the matter of the conviction that was easily seen in and about him. As the Lord liveth, what the Lord speaketh unto me, that will I say. Is that a good slogan for you and me? That's certainly something to think about. Thirdly, what about the courage he exhibited? Standing for the Lord. Aren't you and I taught in Ephesians 6 verses 10 and 12? Above all things else to stand. And finally, the nature of how dangerous false teaching is. 
May you and I be uncompromising and convicted in light of the truth. And may we thus in that watchfulness always be alert, striving to follow that which is the truth of our great God in heaven. And we're thankful for the Bible and times we can come together and encourage each other in the things of truth. Tonight, if there's anyone in this audience, maybe you've been motivated by the ancient man Micaiah. Maybe you've been moved to wish to make changes in a public way in your life. As a wayward child of God, if we could help you come back to your first love, notice the power is not in us. The power is in Christ. You need to repent of those sins, confess them, and be quick to invite again the Lord into your life, and we'd be happy to pray to God for you on that behalf. As an alien child of God, though, or rather an alien sinner who would like to become a child of God, what better night could there be than tonight? If we could assist you in either of the ways that we've listed, perhaps for prayers of strength or otherwise, we'd invite you and encourage you to come and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.